Hello, and welcome to Humanities Matter, brought to you by Brill. I'm Lee Chung Greco, and this week we'll be looking at key issues in the field of humanities. Today we're speaking with Alicia Ely Yaman. She teaches law and public health at Harvard University and is the senior advisor on health policy and human rights at the global health justice organization, Partners in Health. She's also editor of the forthcoming series, Global Health, Human Rights and Social Justice. Alicia, thanks again for sitting down with us. Thank you so much for the invitation. So first of all, tell us what made you want to edit this series? It's a wonderfully exciting opportunity that Brill came to me with. But I think underlying that opportunity was a feeling that um, many kind of disciplines were becoming overly siloed. So, you know, building a wall around global health law or just talking to each other within a very specialized kind of economic and social rights field. And what I really wanted to do with this field was kind of try to bridge those silos, which I think stymies our ability to think about using knowledge and scholarship to promote social change. Can you talk a little bit about some of that cross-section of international human rights law, environmental law, um, all these different sectors that you said, you know, were previously siloed um, how do they interact with each other and what sort of gaps in the literature uh, do you think the series is going to fill? Well, I mean, for example, in global health, we often uh, we're now very focused on um, preventing and preparing for future pandemics or building health systems, universal health coverage under the sustainable development goals. But the challenges in global health are really intimately related to issues of climate change, for example, which are going to affect human and animal and planetary health. And so working in small little circles uh, amongst, you know, groups of people who know each other and are kind of having a small dialogue amongst each other is not nearly as helpful as learning from Uh, other disciplines and seeing, for example, how courts have approached environmental litigation, how um, issues of zoonotic spillover in terms of potentially being a cause of pandemics. So it's all of that kind of cross-fertilization that I think is really exciting about this series. I should say that I'm also excited about the possibility of bringing new voices to this conversation, whether it's about issues of global health and global health security and having voices that are usually not included in the conversation, voices from the global south, critical voices. So um, very much looking forward to doing all of that. Yeah, you mentioned briefly voices from the global south. Are there um, any other specific voices you can talk about that you think maybe historically have been marginalized in these conversations that uh, are going to be included in the series? Well, we've we've made quite a big effort with the editorial board to get a good representation. So I hope to have 
indigenous writers uh, from different areas of the world included and to include, you know, different kind of cosmologies and knowledge of health. I hope to have more interaction with the disability justice community. Uh, and again, that's an issue where, you know, disability justice is going to be inordinately affected by climate change. Um, but we haven't really connected the dots between health, disability, and climate. And I think this kind of series really offers a wonderful opportunity for doing that and for moving the ball. Um, and you already touched a little bit on the question of the pandemic. Um, this past December, international delegates met in Switzerland to discuss the International Treaty for Pandemic Prevention, Preparedness, and Response. Um, and that was initially proposed actually in 2021. Um, just curious your thoughts on this treaty. So right now what we have in front of us is a zero draft, which will inevitably undergo a number of changes. But in the big picture, two things are going on. The international health regulations of 2005 are being revised and amended. Uh, that will be an opt out instrument. So all members of the World Health Organization will need to opt out if they don't wanna be part of that revised IHR. The pandemic treaty is a treaty which will be an, uh, what's an opt-in instrument. So states will need to ratify and join that. And these two processes, it's somewhat confusing now because the two processes are going on simultaneously and there's some overlap, but there are some dissonances between the two processes. So my general, it's difficult to say what exactly either of these will be, but in terms of the series, I think it's extremely important that this, the inflection point of the pandemic and the recognition that we needed a new body of law and to enhance the law that existed is extremely important to document and analyze. And whether these proposals, both the revisions of the IHR and this new pandemic treaty, however it evolves, whether those proposals and solutions were really uh, fit for purpose, whether they addressed the problems that led to the pandemic in the first place and meet the challenges, again, across a variety of sectors, the climate challenges, health and climate are very related, and challenges of gross inequality between the global north and the global south. So I think that we will have books in the series that are extremely important over the longer term of how we understand what the meaning of these exercises is taken to be. And I know, obviously, um, we don't know what that treaty will look like yet, but um, can you talk maybe a little bit more about the specific challenges, especially when it came to the way the international community rallied around, or I guess in a lot of cases, maybe failed to uh, collaborate with each other during the pandemic. Um, you know, what sorts of challenges were we seeing in 2020? And, you know, perhaps what should a treaty address? Sure. Well, so we saw a lot of human rights challenges, right? That a lot of abuses of 
civil rights as well as economic and social rights, because containing COVID is not the same as respecting the right to health. Um, so we saw a lot wide swaths of rights violations and a slide, a, an acceleration of the slide into illiberalism during the pandemic. And I think some of the um, autocratic measures that have been taken will need to be addressed in international human rights law. The pandemic treaty um, and the revisions of the IHR are to some extent more directed at what you said, the failure to share information, uh, the failure to monitor, et cetera. And all of that, of course, needs to be um, uh, shored up and there need to be processes and mechanisms in place for greater accountability. But there also, one of the debacles that we saw was the failure to share technology and information, the failure of countries in the global north to rein in the power of pharmaceutical monopolies, to help finance the, the deconcentration of pharmaceutical manufacturing to other places in the global south. And so, you know, we're going to wait to see whether the pandemic treaty really addresses that fully, uh, as, as fully as it needs to. Um, but there are a lot of questions, Lee, about sort of how to reframe multilateral governance post this pandemic as well, because the, the world that we've lived in since the end of World War II, really, and um, maybe in some ways since the end of the Cold War, has changed. And so, you know, I'm also hoping that this series can have contemplations about how it needs, how that multilateral governance, that global governance for health needs to change in light of what we have lived through in the past few years. Yeah. And so kind of pivoting from a larger public health discussion to reproductive health, which is an area that so much of your career is focused on as women's rights and reproductive rights. Um, in this series, you're taking a look at the advances and backlash relating to reproductive justice. Um, of course, over here in the U.S., the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, and that was a huge setback for reproductive rights here. Um, can you just talk about geographically where else are we seeing reproductive rights rolled back and what countries are actually becoming more progressive on that front? Sure. Well, we're seeing reproductive rights rolled back in some countries in the European Union. Uh, in Poland, for example, I would say is a prime example of that. And actually Russia and Hungary. Um, so the sort of areas where there are conservative populists in many ways. And in Latin America, I would say we've seen what has been denominated as the green wave of a series of countries that have liberalized abortion laws. Um, Argentina did so in 2020 through legislation with a twin uh, law that provided for well baby care in early years of life. Uh, Mexico, the Mexican Supreme Court uh, in 2021 found that complete criminalization of abortion was unconstitutional. 
A year ago today, on February 21st, 2022, the Colombian Constitutional Court uh, found that abortion should be legal through 24 weeks and then continue under certain specific indications to be legal throughout gestation. So I think Latin America is really an area where, you know, very exciting opening up of democracy in a gendered way and an understanding of health systems as social institutions that have gendered dimensions is perhaps most obvious. There are other examples like Ireland, which has liberalized very considerably in the last few years. And I'm curious, um, you mentioned a couple of the countries like Poland, Hungary, um, and in Russia as well that have gone the more conservative route here. And then, of course, talking about um, the progressive front in Latin America. Um, there was actually a very good foreign policy piece about this uh, that came out last year following Dobbs talking about what these laws mean for democracy. And I'm curious, um, from your experience covering this, um, are these changes indicative of a government that is liberalizing? What's the cause and effect here? Yeah, it's it's strange how, you know, the U.S. is, is moving backward as it seems like m- most of the world, with the exception of, like you said, Poland, Hungary, and Russia are, you know, I guess like also going in that more conservative direction. Yeah, I mean, you know, we might see other countries now... Um... With Maloney in Italy, we might see that go backwards. I mean, it's it's very difficult to tell because, again, reproductive rights are very, very unstable. I should have mentioned India, actually, as an example of going forward. Like, there's good jurisprudence from the Indian Supreme Court now. Uh, Kenya, too. And I was actually going to ask about India because I don't, I'm not aware of what's happening there in terms of reproductive rights. Yeah, there's good jurisprudence on abortion of late, and there's good jurisprudence on what they call the third sex and LGBTQ rights in general. In India, it's it's hard sometimes because the courts generally have quite good, uh, sometimes amazingly good jurisprudence, but it's not always implemented in practice. So I think, um, I don't know if this gets to your question fully, but when women and all persons who uh, can gestate are unable to decide if, when, and how they want to have children, that is de-democratizing. That is saying that, well, you really don't have agency over your life to choose how to engage in the labor market. You don't have agency over your life to choose how much education you're going to get, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this reproductive justice is part of expanding democracy. And that is how it has been seen in these countries in Latin America, especially I would say in Argentina, where it was a legislated battle as opposed to something that was brought in through the courts. But definitely that way of, you know, it was a democratic deficit for all of this time and that Uh, women need to be equal in society, that draconian abortion restrictions are in effect structural violence against women and persons who gestate, Uh, and health systems need to be sensitive to gendered concerns. Abortion care, after all, is health care. 
And many of the countries where there has been progress recognize a right to health in their constitutions or through incorporation from international law. And that has been very important. In the Dobbs decision here, the analysis was extremely uh, corseted and narrow because we don't have any of those rights in the United States. And even our equal protection understanding is quite narrow and rigid. I was curious um, when Dobbs came out, if that is the canary in the coal mine for countries like the U.S. that perhaps other human rights are going to be eroded later on. Do you see that happening in other countries? I think where we've, we've already seen that, right? We've already seen uh, attempts to take away voting rights, for example. We may see a case coming down from the court this term on affirmative action. So it's uh, telling certain people that they're not full citizens that get a full set of rights, you know, and get to participate fully in society. That's the message, basically. And reproductive, sexual and reproductive rights in general are a giant smokescreen for conservative actors. When you live in a society like the United States, where the political economy is at a very precarious place for many, many people, it's an easy way to distract us if we're talking about you know, what books kids are reading in schools and uh, gender affirming surgery as though that were really a threat to anybody or anything. Um, so I think it also functions that way. Um, you also talk in the series about the ethical implications of biotech innovations like artificial intelligence. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So this, I think, is going to be a really fertile and increasing area of attention. And I hope the series publishes a number of critical pieces. AI has the potential to expand long-term care and primary care to places where health workers are not. It, It has the potential to improve diagnostics in many cases tremendously. But it also has a potential to replicate, you know, the the information that we put into AI is the information that comes out. And it has the potential to replicate patterns of racism and exclusion. It has the potential to become unchallengeable when it's used to set, for example, social security benefits and stuff. Uh, So I think I'm very much hoping that the series will take on these questions and a number of people will write about it. Can you maybe just clarify for us what AI would look like exactly in that space? I know we're kind of at early stages. Um, I understand from my previous role as a military reporter, sort of how AI might work in the military. It assists with soldiers and making decisions and things like that. Um, But you mentioned a few things like uh, figuring out social security benefits. Um, So what does AI look like in practice in a healthcare setting? So it could look like many, many different things, right? It could be something that is in your home and monitors your diabetes or some other chronic condition if you're elderly and you live alone and and immediately alerts the system that you need help, for example. That's a wonderful tool and could save a lot of money to healthcare systems. 
Similarly, AI to be able to communicate with main uh, larger health facilities or physicians that might not be in a rural community. That's a wonderful use of AI and allowing sort of computer assisted surgeries, you know, but I think there's also um, a danger when I mentioned the social protection. So algorithms in AI that are that are collected over time are used to determine whether people require certain levels of benefits. And that's a danger because it becomes almost unchallengeable. It goes into this sort of black box. And then the people who are denied benefits uh, have to figure out how they can challenge that decision. So is that just an issue of AI where there's a lack of human empathy that goes into that versus would that work out differently right now with actual people when it comes to things like social security benefits? Uh, I think, you know, some humans are racist and problematic as well, but it's much more challengeable. One of the things about human rights that's important is that you should be able to require government or the institutions of government to justify their decisions to those who have to live by the policies and plans that are put into effect. And AI removes that ability to challenge and to require justification often, not always, but often. That's Alicia Ely-Yaman. She's the editor of the forthcoming series, Global Health, Human Rights, and Social Justice. Thank you again. Thank you. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.